Talks at Afters, where you get access and insights from some of the best in the business. Here at Afters, we are on the land of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the extraordinarily rich 60,000 years of continuous culture that we are so fortunate to have here in Australia. Hello, I'm Nell Greenwood, CEO of Afters. And this is the place where you can find insights from some of the leading creatives in our industry. Directors, producers, podcasters, cinematographers, sound designers, screenwriters, radio makers, and more. All talking about how to make great work in complex times. Welcome to Talks at Afters. I think I've taken maybe 10 scripts to the ABC before the librarians and I'd gone, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And they kept saying no. And then finally, this guy, Scott Meek, came over from the BBC and he found this on his desk. It was sitting on the desk school in the department wherever it is for eight months. And he said, I want to make this one. And he had looked at stories from the Gulf, which was this thing that we had, tiny little thing that we'd made. And he said, and you'll produce it? You're the production company? And we went, okay. Robin Butler and Wayne Hope are two of our leading Australian producers, whose work demonstrates the power and importance of versatility in the screen industries. They'll be sharing stories of their careers, from the librarians to the investigators, and most recently, Love in Lockdown, with Denise Erickson, co-founder of Media Mentors Australia. Robin and Wayne are actors, writers, directors and producers who run the Australian production company Gristmill recognised for its distinctive brand of narrative comedy. The pair have created, produced, directed, and occasionally starred in Upper Middle Bogan and Very Small Business. Butler and Hope are also the creative forces behind the popular children's series, Little Lunch. I want to say a big welcome today to um, Robin Butler and Wayne Hope, two of Melbourne's comedy legends. And I'm so delighted to be talking to you guys. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us, Denise. Thank you, Denise. Hello, everyone. Now, the sort of theme for the session today, I guess, is about versatility, because God knows in times of COVID, we've all learned how to pivot and versatile and innovate and all of those things. But you guys have been doing it for your entire career, really. So we're going to explore what that actually means in real life. But I do want to start about what led you into this career path. And Robin, I'm going to start with you because you were very focused. You were very focused from very young, weren't you? I was very focused. I wanted to be an actor from when I was little. Uh, I think I was always pretty funny. I could make people laugh in my house and I really wanted to replicate that forever and ever to keep getting my parents' approval. It's, you know, your basic Freudian textbook. And uh, so my plan was to go to NIDA to be an actor, to go to Sydney Uni because I knew they didn't take you straight away. I was going to go to Sydney Uni for... um, a year or two and do arts and join SUDS, the Dramatic Society, and then I was going to audition for NIDA and at the end of first year. And I did all of that and I auditioned for NIDA. I went through the first day and got the call back and went, this is great, got through the second day and then they said, and come back next year. (laughs) And I fell in a heap. My four-year, five-year plan was... was, uh, 
a catastrophe, essentially. And I just didn't have the stomach to go back at that point. I, I was filled with, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so upset and I was just, so I stayed at Sydney Uni and, and had the time of my life and then sort of built my own career. I was always, I just wrote a lot while I was there. We put on plays, we put on lunchtime plays and plays at the Seymour Centre and we did cabarets and reviews. And then I started doing theatre sports and improvising and um, and then I kind of just fell into this career where I was writing and performing and I felt with comedy you had control over the material. You didn't have to wait for someone to give you a job. You could create the job and I guess that has been my theme for my yeah. life. And you certainly got hold very quickly of that first, I think, you know, tenet of acting, which is rejection. I mean, that one must have been devastating. It was devastating and I really... So I, you knew you were going to be a writer. It certainly forced me into that area. I yeah. think I think obviously I got better at being resilient, but what I did, what I learned from that experience, which I think I've replicated, you know, time and time again in my career is, okay, well, that one didn't work. What else can I do? It didn't make me go, I can't do this. It also made me... Th I just knew that I had other strings to my bow early on that I was capable of other things that I wasn't actually I wasn't the sort of actor and there are many who I know who have been very successful in that way going well I'll go back next year and audition I'll go back the year after that and all because that's my path I felt like oh maybe that's not my path maybe there's a different path and indeed it was now, Wayne, the way you described it to me is you were the cheeky little bugger down the back of the classroom and they decided to think, what do we do with that boy? What happened? I asked you specifically not to bring that up to me. So I know, I just can't resist. You went uh, on. Yeah. I can't resist. Um, that's true. Uh, the good part about you asking about our past is it's, you know, we're all prior Google, so these are the bits that, that people can't find out about. But, yes, yeah. my pathway was basically... Um, a, a dear drama teacher who I think observed the misbehaviour and, and thought there's a, a, an attempt at wit there, perhaps perhaps we could channel this into something and kind of circled around and, <coughs> sorry, there's the bell going. Um, oh, that's probably a courier or something. <laughs> it's a lockdown. We're on a delivery. I apologise, everybody. Oh, yeah, that's all right. Do you need sorry, to go? I just sorry. the paper. It comes every couple of hours. Um <laughs> <laughs> Our drama teacher, my drama teacher, he, he kind of picked me out and, and kind of set me on the path. And he was fantastic. He was, he had, um, only it was his first year teaching and he graduated from Victoria College, Rusden, and he has kind of set up a great drama department in my high school that did a lot of film and TV and he had a Super 8 studio in the back of the drama class and we would make Super 8 films. And so I got immersed in everything all at once, which was kind of a bit of a pathway for me. I, I kept doing both the performing and the making from the get-go. And what what did you thought might be your path before you were being a little bugger down the back? Finance. Finance? Finance. I thought I'd give that a go. I don't know why. I just got nervous at the end of year 12 and, and thought I'd better circle something. And both Monash University seemed close. I was just thinking about petrol money, I think, at the time and went, well, that seems <laughs> close enough that I can afford. Always the producer. Always the producer. <laughs> What's within a 10K radius? Yeah. Uh, um, and so I did that. And then I, during the, the break before university started, 
my drama teacher again, Chris Thompson, great guy who went on to run St Martin's Theatre Company amongst many other things in Melbourne. And he rang me and said, there's an audition going for a theatre company uh, that toured um, regional Victoria and South Australia in theatre for schools and said, you should go. But yeah, all right. So I went and auditioned and I got a 12 month contract. And then wow. um, late, late when you were supposed to be starting uni, I just said to my mum, oh yeah, I forgot to say, I'm, I'm not going to uni, I'm <laughs> joining a theatre company. I'll, I'll talk to you later. And uh, did that go down well? Oh, terrific. She's a Dutch migrant who um, is worried about money and security all the time. So she, you know, ate her nails down to the bone and, and kind of frowned at me for 20 years. <laughs> oh, my God, I love it. So in a way, you sort of did, yeah, like really interesting, disparate sort of start there, which has obviously in a way informed a lot of what you're doing now. Of, you know, it's very random in your case, but very focused, I guess in Robbins but so I know that you guys met and on set and there was a bit of a spark so you got together quite quickly I think you said to me we we did get together relatively quickly um we had I had I'm from Sydney and I'd moved to Melbourne and uh we had met on the set of a show that I was making for the Comedy Channel with Ros Hammond and Matt Cameron. And Matt Cameron was a good friend of Wayne's. They had a theatre company together, actually. And so he said, I'm going to get my friend Wayne to come and play a couple of these parts. It was a mockumentary series called Small Tales and True. And so Wayne came on and played my husband in one of the episodes. And it, it. it went well. Really? Well, that's good. Good practice. It was an audition. Yeah. <laughs> I later found out it was an audition. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 It was all <laughs> Well, look, we could chat about all that, but I think we need to get on to um, some of your productions. So uh, what's the, like, the librarians is the one that was the sort of standout initial one as, you know, for everybody out there. But was, like, how long had you been working together when you did the librarians? Uh, the Librarians was 2007 and the first show we did was with SBS in 2003 and that was a series of shorts, 13 by 5 minute shorts called Stories from the Gulf. Oh yeah, I watched some of that this morning. That was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Was nutty. It was nutty. nutty. It was, uh, um, each episode was a, um, set in a Volkswagen Golf. Yeah. which was our car at the time, um, and each episode was a hire car company and each episode was someone different hiring the, the Volkswagen Golf. Um, and what was great about that was because we had made that off the smell of an oily rag uh, as a way to just make something. This is prior, you know, before YouTube or anything, and we thought we'll just make something. And then SBS got wind of it, and anyway, we ended up making this little series. But we had... 65 minutes of television, which meant that we had a um, credit for that was eligible for funding, you know, for, for drama and funding streams. And then when we finally, we'd be, I think I'd taken maybe 10 scripts to the ABC before the librarians and I'd gone, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And they kept saying no. And then finally, this guy, Scott Meek, came over from the BBC and he found this on his desk. It was sitting on the desk or in the department wherever it is for eight months and he said, I want to make this one. And he had looked at Stories from the Gulf, which was this thing that we had, tiny little thing that we'd made, and he said, and you'll produce it, you're the production company? And we went, 
Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes, right. of course we are. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how that came about. And suddenly we had this big production on our hands. Well, that we... but I guess in a way that is what the sort of lesson out of that is always have a calling card. And by doing that YouTube series, the, you know, and the, with SBS, but it became a really good calling card for you as well, I'm sure. It, it was, did. It was fantastic. Um, it, it, we were very fortunate. It, it got, I remember it got nominated for a, um, uh, an AFI award, um, bizarrely, and it's probably because back then they only made three comedies a year yeah. and, you know, it was like, well, there's another one here. But I remember we went along and they showed uh, one of the episodes, which is one of the pilot episodes we made on our home handicam at the time, and we were sitting there in, at, at the awards and watching the clip come up and the clip, and I remember, you know, when you often when you're making something, you remember back to outside the frame. So you remember yeah. the people on set standing there and you remember where you were. And at that point I could visualise that someone was standing there and the boom pile was made out of our camp bed. And <laughs> in this grand setting, I could see outside the frame going, this is total bullshit. This is just... Here we are in the middle of a big award ceremony knowing what went on outside the frame. That's hilarious. Uh, which was perfect, you know. <laughs> It was pretty cutting edge at the time. Well, well, the promo certainly was, but I remember the series was as well. Is, how did that idea come about? Um, it came about, as, as often is the case with comedy and people who are funny and who write comedy, it, we come from a place of anger and we have been taught or versed or something along the way that we, we can be more effective when we make people laugh rather than make them cry or, or angry. And so I think it was at the time of um, Tampa, Howard will decide who comes to this country and the manner in which they come, all of those things that were just so bewildering and infuriating to so many people and I think you feel like you don't have a voice and, and the arts is always such a magnificent tool for providing a voice and so it was an answer to that and we just found the idea of a passive aggressive woman we didn't really think we'd seen that um, and again it is just such a product of the middle class I think and women who are taught not to have a voice as well so everything's subverted and we thought let's take this woman who's so repressed and let's inhabit this library with everybody that would infuriate her and test her and challenge her and that in turn became a microcosm for Australia you know at the time and we we got to say something about the world we were living in in a kind of yeah quite quite a striking way especially when we look back at it you think oh wow and I think that was the virtue of being sort of younger and more bolshy that we just kind of went for it and we thought well it's happening in the world like why yeah. and that was yeah. the funny thing sometimes we wrote things down and people go oh it's shocking and you go have you heard what they're saying you listening to the radio yeah, yeah. In yeah. Back radio. hello yeah. exactly so and I did notice with that is um you know, it's incredibly diverse in the casting. And I've noticed that in a lot of your productions. I mean, is that obviously um, it's conscious decision because it's not something that happens often enough from, in my mind. But 
has that been something that's sort of driven you, diversity and casting? I think it, just before that, I think the facts, we've always had gender equality in the material by virtue of being oh. the two of us. And Robin has written female protagonists from the get-go in our work. And I think that's had a big influence over diversity in general um, because it's a very different uh, perspective and to have that at the forefront all the time allows for something different. So I think that's that was the spearhead for the rest of the diversity. And I think when you are trying to represent Australia, you just think of it as being diverse. And, and what's magnificent is I really do remember those auditions that we had, our casting way back in, in the librarians, which was, you know, 14 years ago. And the depth and um, of the availability of actors from different, you know, that's really exploded since since then, which is incredible because it means it's just there's a demand, supply equals demand, demand, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's great yeah. to see. And and there's just been more of an argument where people have gone, why don't we see it, you know? Yeah. like So it's, it's great. And it's see. also, I think, too, if you ask, you find, you know. I mean, if you're not looking for it, you don't get it. But yes. as you say, you're looking for it so and you want it. Yeah. And you find, you know, yeah. cool. I'm getting loads of questions here that we're eventually going to get to because they're questions that I'm asking about various productions. So um, what was the thing about the library? Was it because it's a community hub? Was that sort of your thinking of using the library? It was a funny thing. It was um, I had written a sketch. I'd, I'd met my kind of, you know, life partner, soulmates, Ros Hammond and... Um, Bob Franklin um, on the Eric Banner show. And that's who we started doing Small Tales and True with, along with Matt Cameron. And uh, I'd written this character, this librarian character, not Francis from the librarians, but just a different thing. And Rosie reminded me of it later. And she had said that she was always working in the library. And in fact, she and I had started this idea very mm. first, well, anyway, long story, but it was one of those things where we kind of, we don't normally do, but we went, let's stand in a library. Yeah. And then it just turned out to be this great sort of portal for society. Our local library in Melbourne and our local library, when we wrote it, still is, is the St Kilda Library, and it's oh. a great communal space. And we used to yeah. go and sit in there and, and kind of watch it. And, and the great part is the library is one of the few remaining free spaces. So it attracts everybody, you know, a cross section of society. So again, getting back to putting Frances in there and surrounding her with people, it meant that unfortunately, there was a wide variety of the community in the library. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that library's my one too. And when I'm getting to, in my own head, I'll take my laptop up there and sit away. And it's so cool being surrounded by all those people. Yeah. Terrific. Okay, so Upper Middle Bogan, to me, that was much more about class in Australia. Is that, was that the, the nut of the idea behind it? Yes, it was. Um, we were kind of in a development year, which we often do. We often make things in a linear way. So then we have to take a break to develop and, and come up with the next lot. And we were taking a break and we were doing that. And we were talking about things that we were interested in and well no that well actually if I can correct you it was the ABC first of all who had said 
Oh, yeah. Would you be interested in a, doing a family comedy? Because we said we don't want to make any more librarians. And they said, you know, would you be interested in doing that? And we kind of went, you saw the librarians, didn't you? Like, I'm not quite sure how we would do family. Yes, because the family that we represented in the librarians is we were married on screen. And um, I think the first episode, there's a cut to how strong our, or how bad our marriage was <laughs> featured you walking in on me and me masturbating in the shower so <laughs> in terms of them asking for us for a family show we went yeah. are you sure yeah no i don't think so how do you want this <laughs> bit limiting <laughs> but then we went away and went oh this is an interesting creative challenge like how would you do how would we do something like that and then at the time there was a, a the social divide was apparent the kind of public versus private debate was on and was very much the around privatisation in Australia and, again, the whole thing of the shift towards um, private schooling, that people were moving away from the state system into, into the private system. And I was keen to talk about that. And, and it was just starting to be the beginning of that conversation about the divide, the inner city latte sipping, Chardonnay drinking, and then the suburbs and the real people and working families and stuff. And it was like, what, what, is, what, is, what is happening right now? We were just starting to be aware. This was probably 2010, yeah. 2011, we started talking about this. And so it was starting to be what is now, you know, Something that we talk about a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally bloody love it. The first question out of this is actually one coming from our audience. Someone's 12-year-old is obsessed with Upper Middle Bogan and wants to know if there's going to be another series. Uh, we can ask that a lot. Um, there, we stopped making the show because it's one of the... It was a bit of an issue when you're making things in Australia is that... that um, Casting, it's very hard to option people under the Australian system because um, we can't green light things in a, in a very timely manner due to the nature of our funding cycle and, and decision making. And so cast actors need to make a living and they need to go far and wide. So we had a, a huge ensemble in that show. Oh, what a brilliant cast it was. I mean, it was just bloody awesome, all of them. And so, um, you know, several of them were making uh, inroads uh, in other countries and working there. And in the time frame we had to kind of pull it back together, we just couldn't make that work. Uh, we, so we is it never say never? Never say never. Never say no. never. No. No. Okay. Well, I, 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 for one, will be in the queue when it happens. So um, it did sort of, like, how did you cast that? Because it was a brilliant cast. And, I mean, what's your casting process and something like that? Uh, it was long, I remember that. We, we, we take our time. We sometimes write with people in mind, even if we don't uh, think that it will inevitably be that person yeah. or, we're, or we're aiming high, but we find it useful to think about who, who would fit the part for tone times for tone because obviously there are certain people like if you place Glenn Robbins as the dad you just know that you're going to write a kind of goofy someone who's always getting it a little bit wrong it's very easy to write once you picture Glenn doing that but the cast I think we thought about Patty Bramall for Danny the architect and we thought about Glenn. There was a, a couple of people that we thought of that we didn't end up casting and then we 
I think we've spent a long time probably getting our best character that Annie Maynard played, be, being the central part of the family, this mm. adopted woman who belonged in two places. So that, that I remember, it took us about seven months to cast. And, and again, it's complex as you're putting together a family. Robin Nevin was... She was early on, we'd written Nanny Margaret. We spent about three months writing this pilot episode. And then I think during the course of that, I was obsessed with this idea of this woman, Margaret. And we went and saw uh, an MTC play August at Osage County. And Robin was in that playing the lead, the matriarch in that, and she was unbelievable <laughs> as she is. Oh, but yes. She was so played this damage and funny. She was funny as well. And I just said to Wayne, oh, Jesus, that's Nanny Margaret, isn't it? Like, yes. that's got to be her. And we were very lucky. She was a fan of the librarians and she hadn't actually done television for 15 years. Um, but we had a coffee with her and she was super keen and came on board. So, it, it, look, that was just happenstance. If we hadn't gone to that theatre just, you know, that night, we, we wouldn't have... Um, we wouldn't have thought about her probably in that same yeah. way. So a yeah. lot of it is, but we, we really do cast the net broadly, widely, and we try not to be too preconceived about. Yeah. Yeah. And we've worked with Nathan Lloyd, uh, who was at Mullen, as he's now out on his own, great casting director for a long, long time. And he's great at putting up a, a just a wide variety of people. So kudos to him as well. Yeah, he's so and you popped over to New Zealand to get Outrageous Fortune, Robin Malcolm. I mean, straight from one sort of bogan family to the next, how perfect. She was perfect and <laughs> she was great. She was so available and also it was very... Available as an actor, not available in dates, you know. No, she was really hard to get, I should say, her defence. <laughs> um, but she, along with all, everyone that was in that family, she got it straight away because the temptation is to judge either side of the class and to, to, to kind of go, oh, yeah, we're having a go. And she, along with everyone in the yeah. cast, knew, no, no, we're just playing this for absolute truth. She loves Julie Wheeler um, and you could tell and it was yeah. infectious. I just said we love that cast so much. It I was such it. a good cast and I can see the logistical nightmares of getting them back, but we'll keep on living and keep on hoping. Then, like, your work's been mainly tally, I mean, as, to, as a partnership from your company. I mean, obviously you act in movies, you know, separately and things, but, but you did make Now Add, um, now add Honey. So mm -hmm. what was the process like going from, from tally to film? It was... It was very challenging and it's mostly on the, um, I found on the, on the distribution side, the side of, of marketing something, you know, we were very used to being, uh, having the privilege, I guess, of, of um, and how special the ABC is. It goes everywhere in this country and yeah. it's uniform in how it's, it's put out there. Um, and it's so valuable in that sense. Um, whereas film distribution, you have to, you know, go out and find an audience. And that was, you know, really, really challenging. In terms of the, the making it. Um, it was just, it was just, you know, it'd be great to do another one at some point now that we know. It's that thing of walking, you know, we, we really know how to make television, you know, and it's not the making of it. Obviously, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger uh, 
piece of script, you know, piece of story that you're holding in your hand to deliver. But in terms of just all the the people that were involved, that there were just so many voices. Mm. I think we had 35 different sets of notes, <gasps> 35 different people. And what? at the same time, we were making a children's television show and we had no notes. I just found also, and it was more a bigger budget. I feel I felt like there was just so much um, hypocrisy, if I can be bold and say, I felt there was a lot of uh, a, a lot of you know judgment about what's a feature film worth. What's there's a there's a hierarchy. Yeah. And I really feel like we've been we've seen a lot of that in working as creators and producers. I think you feel a lot of what stories we're allowed to tell. Now at Honey was a very female story that we were telling in 2012, 2013, trying to convince a lot of men that it was a story worth telling was very hard. And I think that contributed ultimately to the distribution problem and to just the the manner of, um, you know, I remember one person in a funding situation where one of our you know our protagonists is being exploited she's a child star and she's being exploited and somebody on the panel at some one of these places said but she's making money what's the problem oh oh and I thought I don't really know what I'm doing now I'm stuck yeah, I don't know how you come back from that. I mean, I don't really know what to say. Because I and so there was, I found those things along the way, and obviously in the decade yeah. that we've had there, we've had a lot of discussion about yeah. those things. But I found it's not, it's not just about representation on screen that matters so vitally yes. to me. It's the stories we're allowed to tell. Yeah. Um, and just in the last, you know, with Big Little Lies and these things, you know, I, I don't know whether they would have been told a decade ago. No. You know, I think we've really moved on. So, thank uh, goodness, one might say, thank goodness. Yeah. So talking about moving on, um, then you popped into kids' telly just because you can. <laughs> and so, um, obviously, the little lunch mockumentary, which I'm not showing a clip of because otherwise we just don't have time, but I loved it. I love that sort of mockumentary style. But we're going to sort of talk about investigators and and working for Netflix, holy hell. Now, it's not the most likely story, is it? A, kid, a group of kid detectives called The Investigators. People keep asking in the questions that we're going to come to, where did that idea come from? So let's rip on that. Where did that one come from? Okay, well, this is a, this, this is a fun story. We had made Little Lunch, which was, like you said, a departure from anything we'd done and was born out of the fact that our friends Danny Katz and Mitch Vane, who's the writer and illustrator of those, um, those books, had had that story and uh, we decided to make it into a mockumentary. Anyway, it was more successful than we could have imagined and it was, you know, tremendous. But then we were moving back into the adult space. There, We made two specials for Little Lunch and there was a parliamentary screening of them and because the series had gone to air, there there was this big sort of following and we went to the ACTF, Australian Children's Television Foundation had um, uh, organised these screenings and because they'd gone to air, they were very popular and they had gone to um, 
they, they all the politicians and you know people in Parliament House had brought their kids and we had this screening that was just full of people and we had some of the cast there and these kids were, everybody was just delighted and the, the specials were really lovely. And afterwards it felt incredible. The head of television and the, you know, minister and everybody were kind of wiping away tears. It was just, it was one of those really beautiful nights. It happened to be the night before the US presidential election. And I was filled with, oh my God, we're in the center of democracy and tomorrow we're gonna have the first female president and it's gonna be so incredible. And we went, we flew back home to Melbourne and I bought a bottle of Verve and I was gonna sit with my daughters and watch this. And then the night unfolded and it was just so catastrophic. Yeah, that didn't go well. It did not go well. And so then I thought about how much it mattered. We had diversity and gender equity and we had all these things. And I thought, you know what? We're all preaching to the choir. We're preaching to it. We're in our bubbles. And you've got to start from the ground up. You've got to start when they're bubbers and you've got to teach respect and kindness and fairness to when people are little. And so I said to Wayne, we're doing another one. We're doing another kids show. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> I said, and I, I love detective stuff and I love... I, you know, loved Encyclopedia Brown and those things. So I thought we can do a sort of similar thing and then we can make um, uh, this. And so we went to the ACTF very early on, who are incredible partners, incredible backers of all our stuff, and just said, um, what about this one? And they went, yeah, great. And it turns out it was the biggest production we'd ever, we've ever undertook, um, undertaken. undertaken. It was it was 40 episodes, which was enormous. <gasps> Because we wanted to do two seasons at once to, because what we suffered from with Little Lunch is they grow up so fast that you can't make a, another series. So we kind of committed to that and, um, wow, that was an experience. And how did Netflix come on board then? Well, they had already had Little Lunch in the US and the UK. Yeah. And so, and which had been, had done well. And so we just went and saw them in LA and just went, you know, what about this one as well? We were seeing them, you know, at the time about other shows as well. So we had started to have a relationship with them and also the ACTF were working with them. So we kind of both circled around and, <clears throat> yeah, once your shows are on the platform, um, it's a little bit easier to get a, you know, to, to pitch something there. That's right. Um, There's a quick audience question here. Is it true that streaming services only want two to three seasons of a new show and that's it? Because their main aim is, well, to get new subscribers. Is that what you've found or? Well, we haven't. um, We only did two seasons of that for them and and we kind of agreed that that was it for for the investigators. I think that is the trend from from what I can see and what I read. I think that is a a trend that um, it seems like after three seasons, then they're not getting that audience that used to tail off. They're going, no, no, we'll put the money somewhere else. And it's all about, I think, a little bit about what's new and vibrant. Except and Grace and Frankie, that's doing season seven. <coughs> I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, yeah, me too. <laughs> but, I mean, you're right. I mean, in the end, it is a progressive platform. They're progressive platforms, and it is about getting more subscribers. Um, so what was it like working for Netflix? Um, it was great. great. It was very, very good. It was a, was a co-production with the ABC, I should say, and they were yeah. very, ABC were on board um, right from the start and were backing it 
but the scale of the production meant that we did need co-production for it to go ahead. <laughs> In terms of working with them as a co-production, it was, it was terrific. Once we pitched the idea, it was really straightforward. They, they loved the idea. And so I think after we'd kind of done the initial script, it, it was fine. And then during the post path, which was really long, after we'd cut, say, the first two episodes, you know, they were... Off you went. It was a dream. It really was, I have to say. And did you have to do anything differently because you knew it was being done? No, I mean, that was the great thing, wasn't it? That they took care of all that. They've, they're rigorous on the tech end of things, though, I will yeah. say. That, 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 that's the most rigorous, not creatively, down the, down the back end. Oh, it was the post, the, the tech checking and everything was in, incredible. And I guess because they're putting it out to, you know, 187 countries, yeah. um, all of that stuff is really, really important. So, yeah. you know, they, you, you constantly get apps back going, I've heard someone's in the background of the, of the playground say something in English and you'd listen and go, I can't, really? <laughs> wow, you heard that. Okay, oh, we'll, we'll change that. I love it. Well... People are asking what you're working on at the moment and I bloody love this and I reckon everybody should watch it. It's Love and Lockdown. So Lucy and Eddie. Now, what can I say? What a perfect partnership. But this was like a hell's bells, let's just do it production going back to your roots really, isn't it? So tell me about how it all came about. Well, it was... I don't know, the first lockdown, I've lost all sense of whenever anything was now, but the first lockdown we were a few weeks into it and Lucy, who's a dear friend of mine, just contacted me and said, I've got this idea for a rom-com in isolation. And we just finished a whole bunch of funding applications for some young people in our company and we were sort of, you know, stuck in the house. Our dog had just died. I was absolutely bereft. And I went, that... Yeah, that sounds fun. What is it? Oh, yeah. Doing ukulele online love. Yep, great. Let's do that. So Lucy and I wrote it over Zoom. We kind of worked out the um, story in a couple of days. And then I wrote the scripts in about or two, two, yeah, something really, really quick. And I just kept saying, hurry up, hurry up. We need to do this really, really fast. Let's get Eddie. Great. Let's get Eddie. So we just did it really fast. And Wayne started sourcing. Um, the camera gear because yeah. we had... Eddie was in Sydney and, and Lucy was in Melbourne, so we had to shoot and work out a way to, to make something, um, which was great. So we, from that initial discussion to the release date was 17 days, which was just so much fun. And it, and it reminded us, going back full circle to Stories from the Gulf, it was, we both said, we haven't done anything like it since then where we didn't ask for permission. There was no pitching. There was no funding, which is all fine, but it is a very dense process so to act instinctively after so long was just glorious we had a ball and i think it's seven episodes isn't it is it six six, six. yeah i'm up to number four at the moment um so yeah no do look at that i mean it, it just shows you what you can do when things go right i mean one of the questions that's come up here is what are some of the changes you'll think you'll see to tv production and content good or bad coming out of covid now for me that was a ripper so are you going to change your i mean incorporate more of that in your repertoire or i think what it points to is that that there are other ways and i think there has to be 
what will be interesting going forward. Now we've got a kind of premium content being made that everything's global. So production values have gone to kind of high-end film level, which is magnificent. We all love eating as much as we can get on television, but it's really expensive and takes a long time to develop. So I'm interested in, even in comedy, things like this will appear because people will naturally find another way to create and innovation will come in that space, I think. TikTok so. much? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's inevitable that now is a time of, of reinvention. And I guess and a, Go, Robin, sorry. I was going to say, and a reminder that things are, you know, I, I have said this before, but writing is a superpower in this period. Creatives have a superpower. The way that people have reinvented themselves in this period to and I, I i mean people in cafes selling different things people you know just people's creative instincts are so inspiring and it is a reminder well what if we just had that one location and what if we just you know what i mean you can do things in a different way i think that's good in terms of what networks broadcasters sfos will want to buy when we come out of this like what the mood will be if people want to watch dystopian things anymore? Do they just want to watch warm things? You know, we're, in, we're trying to just sort of think, let's create a few different things for a market of, you know, real, we, about which we have no idea. So what sort of things are you working on to meet that need at the moment? I mean, I'm not asking you to name names or petrol, but I'm interested to know the sort of things that you're working on. Well, I, I can't see there's a whiteboard behind us, but I can only go that far because they're all, they're all <laughs> just beyond there. Um, look, it, it, off what Robin said, it, it's kind of what we're trying to do is respond to how we feel. So, um, you know, we're in Melbourne and it's been bleak. So we're, one of the things we've been writing the last month is something um, really warm and optimistic that we started on that's been joyous and, and it's no surprise that it's, in stark contrast to the environment we're sitting in at the moment. It was funny, we've been working on a more intense uh, sort of drama, sort of end of thing that we, we will, that's a good way of describing it. See, I'm trying to be a, a bleak and obscure when I say it, just yeah. so it doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> but we, we've been working on it for a, quite a few months. And in the first lockdown, we'd, we've sort of mapping out the series and we've written a pilot episode. and we just sort of had to stop because it's it's quite dark and it's still funny, but it's 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 quite um, dark as in it's about grief in a way and we just felt like it's, it's too hard to do right now. Mm. And I think sometimes, going back to something like the librarians, what you're feeling inside is often a good barometer of what the marketplace might be mm. feeling as well. And so I think it's been good to respond to that. So we've been working on a couple of different comedies and we've been working on a podcast idea. I know I can feel your eyes rolling around. No, no, I bloody love podcasts. Um, so do we. Well, that's what we thought. We absolutely consume them and so we've been working on something. I'm saying it out loud, which means I'll finish it. I'm saying <laughs> it now for the record. 
And one of the things I noticed is that Audible is actually commissioning radio plays and things. Yeah. So, you know, I think I bloody love podcasts. They keep me sane. Yeah. I go for a walk and when I'm doing the, oh, doing the washing up. So I'll look forward to yours. When you pitch now, or, I mean, how do you pitch? Do you have such good relationships with your suppliers? It really is a matter of your buyers. That's really a matter of bringing them up and saying, I've got a new one. Partly, although mostly we really do like having a spec script up our sleeve because we don't really want to be paid to develop a script. We are in a very privileged position. We will say that to, to be able to do that. Um, but, but we like going with a spec script to go, here it is in chunk form rather than just the idea. Read the, read the chunky versions so you kind of get the, the whole feeling, tone, sense of the funniness of it or the dramaticness. Some people say drama. <laughs> I say dramaticness. <laughs> We're good For at a writer. <laughs> it's terrific at pitching, you can tell. It's just fluid. Um, but we do, we do get in the room together and we do, because having a performing background certainly helps that you can yeah. feel comfortable kind of there and riffing on an idea. What's your advice for budding comedy writers getting their material in front of producers? Or, like, I guess they're saying, do you read anybody's scripts? Look. Largely, no, because we, we, we focus on our own work. Um, but, but in terms of how you get your work out there, I mean, game full circles, you know, when we started, we, we got our show on, the, on SBS. There wasn't YouTube. Now the, the, the power sits with the creative. You can start getting your ideas to screen and we both encourage that so much that it is a, a true avenue to, to find your voice. And if it's just the script you've got, there are, there are so many portals now via Facebook or, you know, the funding bodies, Film Victoria has a whole page of, you know, networking sort of opportunities to kind of get with people. But there's just no excuse for not doing it. It's the best way to, one, get out there, but also get better at your craft, you know, and we, we made something that started our whole career when there was no YouTube, you know, so there's no excuse. I want it done by Friday. <laughs> oh, God, I'm terrified. You'd be a great motivator. <laughs> You've been listening to Talks at Afters, an Australian film, television and radio school podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes. For show notes and other resources, head to afters.edu.au. That's afters.edu.au.